Amen. <laughs> Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, I ask that you would give me words of hope to speak to these, your people, coming together. Um, bind me from saying anything that might be harmful uh, to, to these, your beloved. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. You're witnessing history today. This is the first time I'm, I've used this. So if I kick it or if I'm fidgeting with it, um, Bailey's, I'm going to count on you to just take it away from me, okay? <laughs> Ugh, this is so short. Some people, like, can't preach without these, you know? Great. This works. I think. We'll see. So my children and I right now are reading The Hobbit. I'll, I'll come back to that. I'll put this here. You're all, I've already lost everyone here. Great. Uh, let's just jump to the creed right now. How about that? <laughs> so me, me and you are going to have a, a relationship, aren't we? Great. This, this will be interesting. So my children and I are reading The Hobbit right now. Has, have it, how many of you here have read The Hobbit? Okay, so confession, this is actually my first time to go through this with them. I've, I know, it's horrible. Ah, oh, booze already. Again, our first time visitors are like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Goodbye. And I am just, I, I know the story well. I've talked about it with so many of my friends, seen the movies, all that sort of stuff. But obviously nothing compares to the book. It's, it's a delightful, wonderful book. And the part of the thing that I love about it is the beginning when Gandalf comes to Bilbo and he starts calling him what? He calls him a burglar, right? And he's, and he's calling this out of him. He's saying, you, you are a burglar. And Bilbo at first is just utterly shocked by this. He's like, no, I'm, I'm not a burglar. I don't go on adventures. I stay here. I'm a creature of comfort. You know, on and on and on. But Gandalf is insistent. He says, no, I know you. You have something inside of you. You are adventurous. You actually enjoy this. You are seeking after this. And he keeps calling him a burglar, and he protests. Well, the dwarves come and barge into his home. And this is all very fresh in my memory. Perhaps it's not in yours. Um, the, the dwarves are coming, and the dwarves are very disappointed that Gandalf has chosen this to be the burglar of their company, this hobbit. And so the dwarves are protesting as, as well. And so Gandalf pushes back, and he pushes back, and, and uh, you know, he turns the room dark around him. It's very frightening and scary, and everyone says, fine, fine. We will bring this, this supposed burglar along with us. Well, over the course of the story, we had this long, gradual um, conversion or epiphany, now that we're all very familiar with what the word epiphany is, on the part of Bilbo himself. He kind of comes around to this idea and that he is indeed a burglar. You know, he's, over the course of the story, he rescues his friends from trolls. He steals the magic ring from Gollum. He battles giant spiders. He rescues the dwarves again from an underground elvish prison. And this climaxes, I think, that his identity climaxes when he's in the depths of a dragon's lair. And he's yelling out to the dragon all these titles that, it has, that he's placed upon himself. He calls himself Webcutter, Stinging Fly, Guest of Eagles, and Barrel Rider. You see, latent within him the whole entire time was not just an adventurer, but a hero. And it took those words of Gandalf, and, and then the dwarves eventually come around as well to, um, to convince him of this. You can see, I, I probably don't like that. 
<laughs> anyway, I'm done with that. So, I'm pretty sure that Tolkien stole this plot line from the Gospel of John, from the story that you read this morning, because there's actually a very similar thread that's running throughout this passage. And if you look carefully, you might even catch some trolls or some dragons lurking in this Gospel passage this morning. You see, the story that we'll be looking at today comes, uh, is it, it's at the beginning of John's Gospel. This is the story of Jesus calling some of the first disciples. And I also want to pause for a moment and remind you where we are in the church calendar. So we celebrated Advent. We waited for Christ to come. We celebrated Christmas itself, the arrival of the King. And then we celebrated Epiphany last week. Um, we, we baptized uh, some folks. We had a, a reaffirmation of baptismal vows. And we celebrated the fact that the great mystery of God has been revealed that Christ is revealing himself to the Gentiles, to the nations. And so now we're in this season called Ordinary Time. Uh, you'll notice the green banners now, and I'll be wearing a green stole, just kind of mark uh, Ordinary Time. And this is a season we'll be gleaning more of the wisdom of Christ. We'll be looking more at the doctrine and the nature of who Jesus is. But this morning, what we're looking at is Jesus gathering the disciples. And I don't want to spoil things totally for you, but this is supposed to remind us of Jesus gathering the church. He's building the church now. He's building a kingdom. He's gaining a gathering. So the story just before this in John, this is when he calls Andrew, uh, who uh, William shared with us, is the patron saint of Scotland, if you all remember. Uh, but he calls Andrew, and then Andrew then goes and fetches his brother Simon, who's then renamed Peter, which means rock, which means rock. And then this passage that we're looking at today also comes right before the wedding at Cana and the cleansing of the temple and those we looked at several months ago, which I'm sure all of you have impeccable memories and remember those conversations very, very clearly. So here, Jesus is gathering his disciples and he's preparing them. He's preparing these simple fishermen for this great journey that they're about to embark on, a journey that none of them could have ever have dreamed of. It will forever change the way that they understand themselves their own identity, and the way in which they understand God himself as well. So this is an ordinary story. It begins with Jesus going to an ordinary place, Galilee, and it says that he found Philip. Most likely, Philip was the friend of Andrew and of Peter. Perhaps Andrew and Peter have already talked to Jesus about Philip, saying, hey, we need to go and find him. We need to find this guy. And so sure enough, Jesus goes and, and finds him. And then Philip goes and finds Nathanael. And this is beautiful as well. When someone is excited about Jesus, they go and they go and they find their friends and they want to bring their friends to Jesus as well. And you can see them kind of discussing what this, uh, what this Jesus person is like. Philip just extends a very simple invitation to him, uh, using the scriptures actually, to try to sway Nathanael to come. He says, come, we found the person that the prophets and the law has prophesied about. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And we're seeing in these early passages here just a simple example of simple friendship evangelism. These are organic relationships. There's no guilt trips that are going on here. There's no manipulation or anything like that. It's just friends talking about something that they're excited about. Well, Nathaniel is a little bit um, hesitant to go, shall we say. He says that he doesn't, he's not so sure about actually going. And the irony here is that Philip, his friend, is arguing from the scriptures 
Uh, he's saying that, yes, the Messiah says that the, um, the, or the Old Testament says that the Messiah is coming, but Nathaniel points out that Nazareth is, is a no place. It's nowhere. It's nowhere's town. Nazareth itself is actually never mentioned throughout the entire Old Testament. Uh, s- scholars and historians think that probably no more than 200 people actually lived in the town of Nazareth. So my wife and I used to live in San Francisco, which most people have heard of San Francisco. And I remember talking to one of my pastors there saying, hey, uh, there's a seminary I want to go to. One of my favorite uh, professors from college actually went to, to go teach at the seminary. And they're like, cool, cool, where is it? I'm like, it's in Alabama. And as you can imagine, people in San Francisco are like, well, I, I, I'm sorry, what, what did you say? And I kid you not, my, my pastors in San Francisco said, do not go to seminary in Alabama. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. And we can talk later uh, uh, you know, over coffee as to whether or not that was a good idea. Um, I'm kidding. I loved my time there. It was great. It was wonderful. But Philip, uh, I, I love his reaction. He uses these beautiful words back to Nathaniel. Rather than arguing with him, rather than twisting his arm or dragging him, he says to him, just come and see. Come and see. Isn't that beautiful? Just come and see. Come and, and check it out for yourself. I'm not going to twist your arm about this. Just come and check it out for yourself. Some of you might feel something similar when you're inviting people to come to an Anglican church. They might say something like, Angelican? Like, what, what is that? And you're like, no, Anglican, Anglican. I, trust me. Just come. Come and see. And you're like, you know, it's, it's kind of evangelical. You know, it's, it's kind of Catholic. It's, it's kind of charismatic. And, you know, again, it's, we're all of those things. But really, it's, it's very hard to explain, isn't it? Like, some of you have probably run into this when you're inviting friends to come check this out. And so how does the conversation end? It probably ends something along the lines with, well, just come and see. Come and check this out. Come and form your own opinion. Well, Nathaniel does go. And sure enough, he's completely gobsmacked by Jesus. He's completely shocked by him. Jesus says to him, he sees him coming. And he says, behold, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Now, my first reaction when I hear those words, maybe you react the same way. You're like, really? Nathaniel doesn't have any deceit in him? He's, he's never told a lie? He's, he's not a fibber? at all. You know, in reality, Nathaniel probably did. But see, here's the thing. Jesus, he sees that, yes. But Jesus is is looking at people with the entire scope of history in his mind. He knows that one day he's going to be atoning for all of our faults and all of our sins. That's all going to be nailed uh, to the cross and atoned for. When Jesus looks at us, he sees he sees the potential inside of us. He sees what he wants us to be. And he calls that forth. He calls that forth. It just happened in the passage before, which we did not read this morning, where he looks at the hot-headed Simon who obviously, or who is regularly talking before he thinks, and he calls him Peter, which means rock, or some translator, one of my favorite translators refers to him as Rocky. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's Peter. And Jesus says this about him. He says, uh, on, on, he says about Peter, uh, he is the one on whom the church will be built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then to this skeptical Nathaniel, Jesus calls him sort of a teller of truth, one who can be trusted. You see, Jesus values those who come to him and Jesus wants to speak words of elevation and love to these people. 
So society right now, the society that we live in, is undergoing a huge crisis of identity. I'd say it's one of the major things that, that we as Americans are, are wrestling with these days. And I, I kind of suspect that we got ourselves into this mess. You know, if you look at our founding documents, it, it says that we value things like freedom and the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, I'm, I'm not as good enough of a historian to know exactly what the founding fathers meant by those terms. But these days we come to interpret that as, I deserve whatever I want, and I can be whomever I want. Freedom and the pursuit of happiness. Now, you know, again, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts sometime about what the original intention of those words possibly meant. But these days we are plagued by questions of identity. What, what exactly do I enjoy doing, we're always asking. In what day does my vocation define or not define who I am? How can I support myself? How am I defined by my race, my gender, my economic class? Now, these are good questions, in fact, to wrestle with. You know, we talk about these things all the time. They're really good questions. But they're nearly impossible to answer in today's world. We hear this, you know, where our society is so noisy and contradictory at times. It's violent. We have a polarizing society. And so it's nearly impossible to actually come to a solution, to come to an answer to these things. Our society lacks any sort of compass for discovering the answer to these things. Usually we're too busy, we're too distracted ourselves, and eventually we feel very overwhelmed. We can't give proper attention to answering these questions. So, uh, Ron Johnson, he's a former CEO of Target. Do you, Mike, do you know who Ron Johnson is? Okay. So he's, he's a great guy. I really, I really like Ron because uh, you know, he, he was also the Apple's VP of, of retail, so that's how I know of who he, who he is. Um, but he's a great guy, good speaker. But he, he used to talk about how stores can sometimes get themselves into trouble by giving consumers too many options. Uh, too many options can actually hurt sales for a, for a business. You see, if someone walks into your store needing a blender and they walk into an aisle with about 17 different kinds of blenders, well, they, they quickly feel overwhelmed and they feel ignorant and they decide to actually just put off the decision until they can come back more educated and prepared. They might go and talk to friends and whatnot. But if you go into the store and there's just two blenders, it's like, well, I want the blue one, not the silver one. You know, it's an easy decision. Well, the world is telling us that we can be whomever and whatever we want and we can post, and so sometimes what we do is we postpone these important decisions, and then we become stuck. We become stuck. There's, in my opinion, there's no better place that we see souls and people grappling with these issues of self-definition and identity than on social media, right? Isn't this an arena where we see these questions constantly thrown out and, and grappled with? So I, I, I want to look at this for a second. So social media, if you look at the companies who are like Facebook and Twitter and whatnot, these are companies that um, their business model is to try to target you with ads. They want you to try to express yourself as much as possible. They want to know more about you so that they can better target their ads about you, right? So if Facebook comes out with a new field uh, that you can fill in, you know, your favorite movies or whatnot, they want you to fill that out so that they can get more information about you. Not because they care about you and they want to connect you with, with more people and whatnot, but because they want to target you. They want to make money off of you. 
And they tell us that the more that we express ourselves, the more that people will like us. Literally, we get likes, right? We get these thumbs up, we get these stars, sometimes we get hearts. You know, it's very affirming. We love to go and check this stuff. And we feel like what we're doing is we're building our, our brand, our identity, right? I wonder at times if these companies are going to be looked back as, as, you know, kind of the equivalent of cigarette companies, right? Where they're trying to get us hooked and addicted into this stuff. And we convince ourselves or, uh, that this identity that we're projecting is actually our true identity. This is something that we try to polish and that we, we glean and we curate. We love obsessing over our online caricatures of ourselves. We probably have friends who post pictures of this perfect life and we go online and we see this perfect life. You know, we pick up the phone and we call these people and we know that reality is far from what's being portrayed through those lovely uh, pictures and whatnot. And perhaps you're there. Well, brothers and sisters, of, of course, this is, this is a pandemic, I think, in our society right now. But thankfully, there's good news. You know, if you're living in this kind of virtual prison, the good news is that Jesus knows you fully and completely. And he bought you as our New Testament reading tells us. He paid a high price for you. And he names you. He identifies you. He calls you into a deeper and greater purpose. He gives us a name that's more true than our Twitter bio. He gives us uh, more, or he gives us, he calls us into beauty that's more um, gorgeous and encapsulating than an Instagram filter. And he gives us a story that's more compelling than a Facebook Live video. But you see, Jesus identifies us but when he does so, sometimes it can be a little jostling, right? We don't necessarily want to take this identity onto ourselves, do we? This last week, I went to a luncheon with some other pastors in the neighborhood. I'm sitting there eating my uh, day-old uh, Mediterranean food. It was, it was, it was great. They, they just eat leftovers for whatever's going on at the church. It's great. And this one pastor walks in, and he sees me, and he points at me. He goes, I know you. You're that Anglican guy. And I'm like... Ah, uh, yeah, I, I guess so, I guess so. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I, I won't tell you who it is. He's a very delightful, lovely person. I, I, it almost came out of my mouth. He's, he's a great guy. We're going to grab coffee sometime. But my next thought was, oh, like, what else does he know about me? How did he find this stuff? How did he find this stuff out about me? Well, back in our gospel passage, there in, 48, in verse 48, that's exactly how Nathaniel responds. How do you know me? He says to Jesus. And he's probably wondering, like, are, is Jesus, like, is there anything else that he knows about me that I should try to figure out here? And Jesus responds back in just kind of this, this humorous, delightful sort of way. And he says, I saw you even before Philip went and got you. I saw you sitting underneath the fig tree. And Jesus is revealing something quite significant and profound about himself here. You see, Jesus doesn't know us because he just looked us up on Google. Oh, and, and that's how this pastor, he, uh, th this other pastor, he, he saw me through Facebook, I guess. Uh, and, and I said, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, I saw your Facebook ad. And I was like, ah, oh, great, great. So Restoration's Facebook ads are, are targeting pastors. Awesome. <laughs> Perfect. That's what I'm trying to do is get other pastors to come here. So anyway, Jesus doesn't Google us. That's not how he finds out about us. He finds out about us because he's the Lord. He's God. He's God himself. And this should be more incredible, more fear-inducing, and yet more comforting to us. 
So I don't know if, if you caught this or not, but each, each one of the scripture readings this morning picks up on this theme in some sort of way. And by the way, these are the liturgical readings for this Sunday. These aren't scriptures that I picked out for the day. So if you open up a, a book of common prayer for this day, you'll see that these are the four readings assigned for today. So you can see how in 1 Samuel, when God is speaking to Samuel and calling him forth, right? it says in there that Samuel didn't even yet know the Lord, and the Lord had not yet revealed himself to Samuel. But yet God pursues him and calls him forth. And as we know, he gets set on this incredible, amazing journey as well. And then that famous psalm, Psalm 139. Oh, so beautiful. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You hem me in behind and before. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So on and so forth. This just shows us how much the Lord knows us and loves us. And then Paul in our New Testament reading, some of you are probably sitting there thinking, oh man, what does this have to do with, with identity and whatnot? Well, as you'll see in this passage, it's not just talking about sex, sexual immorality because that's something that Paul loves to talk about. No, these are people who have been, have been bought with a price, the text tells us. And so what Paul is saying to the believers, you belong to Christ. He has claimed you. He has named you. He's given you a purpose. So act like it. Act like it. Live as one of his members. So, I wonder, what name does Jesus have for you this morning? And what I mean by name, just not just a title, although perhaps, I don't know, maybe the Holy Spirit's bringing something like that to your mind right now. But what sort of calling, what sort of identity does the Lord have for you? You know, maybe the Lord looks at you and he knows, you are dependable. You are the truth teller. You are the bearer of hope. You are a spiritual mother to many. You are an artist, a creator. It's okay to ask Jesus. If you don't know, it's a good thing in your prayer life to go and ask the Lord, what sort of identity, what is he calling you into? In fact, during communion, after you receive the bread and the wine, we'll have prayer ministers in the back. We'd love to pray with you over this. Well, Nathaniel is, of course, amazed and blown away by this. And he, he sees here who Jesus is. He proclaims, Jesus, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Now, we could spend another sermon just on, on that little phrase right there. You see, Son of God, which is this title of divinity, but then you also see King of Israel, which is this title based on Jesus' humanity. You see both the divinity and the humanity there. And so what happens is Nathaniel, as soon as he, he is identified, he's brought into this greater clarity of who Christ is. And that's what, that, that's what um, being identified does to us. And I love the passage. As you, know, as, as you read it, maybe you see Jesus kind of chuckling at this, right? He says, you think that's neat? You, th you think that it's amazing? You believe just because I saw you sitting under the tree? You'll see much greater things than this, Jesus says. You will see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On himself, he's saying. Jesus himself, you see, is the gate where heaven and earth meet. And he's saying that to Nathaniel. Wherever I go, you follow me wherever you go. And this is going to be a thin place a place where you're going to be able to encounter heaven itself. You're going to see amazing things, Nathaniel. Now, this is, uh, I'm going to end with this. 
And this might seem like a small point, but really, this is a big point. So there in, in 51, you see the verse says, And he said to him, so Jesus, singular, says to him, singular, Nathaniel, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up. The you there is actually plural. It's plural. And in the original language, it just jumps off the page because you're seeing this dialogue between two. And then all of a sudden, you see here, Jesus is now speaking to the plural. He's speaking to all the disciples. And I believe, just given the nature and the feel of the Gospel of John, this is a passage, this is a line that's actually meant for all the believers of Christ. Us, here, gathering in this sometimes stinking gymnasium, we are being told that we will see heaven opened up. The closer we get to Christ, the more in tune we will see heaven itself opened up. You see, so many Christians these days, and, and I, many of you uh, concur with this. We've, we've had conversations about this over coffee and whatnot. But so many of us have been taught that the Christian life is just about me and Jesus, me and Jesus. And it's just this one-on-one -on -one time, this little powwow with just me and Christ. You know, and that's, that's great. We are supposed to have a deep, intimate relationship with Jesus. He names us, but he doesn't name us just to be isolated by ourselves. He calls us into a community of other believers. And that second part, that's something that we as American Christians don't always get, do we? We're called to be a body together. We're called to be in a community. And again, that's what we saw in that New Testament passage reading. Paul's encouraging the believers there, live at harmony with one another. Don't live in these lives of sexual immorality. That is just bringing darkness and sin and jealousy and on and on and into your lives. No, live lives of purity and holiness. We want to be a community here at Restoration that is bearing one another's burdens. We want to be a community that's speaking truth into one another's lives. We want to be a community that's building each other's faith up. So if I'm having a low point in my faith, I want to be able to lean on you all and vice versa. We need each other here. We are the body of Christ. So I wonder if restoration can be that kind of place for you here this morning. I wonder if we can be this place where we're able to lean on each other. Not because we're perfect. Lord knows that. You know that. This isn't a museum of saints. This is a hospital for sinners. But yeah, we are not perfect. But we can be a place of hope. And I'm struck already with the ways in which that's been happening. Um, Many of you have been bringing meals to each other, helping each other move, meeting each other's homes, watching games with one another, grabbing drinks with one another. And I love that. I love that. We are being with each other. So maybe you're here this morning and you're wanting to be named by Christ. So I invite you during the music, during communion, during the prayer time, to ask the Lord what he has for you. But know that we are a community here and we would love to help discern that with you. We'd love to chat about that. That's not meant to be something that's done in isolation. We want to be able to have those conversations with each other. And then, Lord willing, we can be sent out to love and serve the Lord with gladness and singleness of heart. So with that in mind, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for every single individual who is in this room. Lord, I don't know all of their stories. I know some of their stories, but... I am confident, Lord, that you have brought people here this morning for a reason. To know so that they can know that you see them. You see them from afar. You've been watching them even before they were born. You've had them in your mind. So, Lord, thank you for purchasing us with your own blood. 
I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us, that we might know more of who you are and what you are calling us to be. Guide us with your wisdom and with your discernment. In your name and for your glory we pray. Amen.